Hey, it's Gabriel. And Alex. For the first 10 episodes of Life on the Brink, we've heard from a pretty decent array of conservationists at different stages of their career. We've had professors, people doing their PhDs. We've been all over the place. But this time, we're looking even earlier into the life of a conservationist. We're talking to someone who's weeks away from finishing their undergraduate degree in marine biology. And even though she doesn't have doctor in front of her name, our guest is already immersed in the world of sharks. She worked with the American Shark Conservancy, National Geographic, and the Nature Conservancy, and is a part of the project monitoring and tagging Florida's great hammerhead sharks. The scientific name for great hammerheads is... is <laughs> oh my God. S-P-H-Y-R-N-A. I got it. Sphirna Mokaran. Sphirna Mokaran. Mokaran. And I got to do this one. And I got lucky again because it was relatively easy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to give a little bit more of a backstory. So the Spirino Mokaran was first described by William Peter Edward Simon Rupel, this uh, German naturalist, and he described them in 1837. And the word Sphirina is ancient Greek, and it means hammer. Um, and Mokaran is an Arabic name for great. So basically we've got, Oh, it's just the backwards. Oh, great hammer. That's so easy. Screw that. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) All righty. So settle in to hear why (laughs) hammerheads actually have such weird looking heads, how shark scientists measure the stress levels of these giant sharks, and how a project researching hammerheads can come from a little ad on Craigslist. This is episode 11 of Life on the Brink, featuring Deborah Santos de Azevedo and the great hammerhead shark. Uh, did you have any questions before we get started in all of it? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, just want to let you know that I have a, a dog here and I told him to stay quiet. So <laughs> okay, he cool. should be a good yeah. boy. <laughs> He's a good boy. He listens. Um, and I took notes, by the way. So I'm just going to kind of like whatever notes I took just because I want to make sure everything's correct and stuff. Yeah, yeah, for so sure. I'm a little nervous, but it's okay. <laughs> um, that's all good. Honestly, if you're like, there's no stress. I mean, I stumble on my words all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Cool. Well, um, might as well get started. All right. I guess to begin with, how how did you how did you get into conservation? What sort of pointed you in that direction? So it was actually kind of interesting how I got thrown into this field. Um, I actually came from Brazil and I moved into the United States when I was three years old. My family background is mostly in like computer science. My my parents and my grandparents are pastors. So no one really was like, I love sharks. It was something completely different. <laughs> um, yeah, but I like grew up in South Florida. So I was always around the ocean. I was either snorkeling on some team or, you know, swimming in the lake, things like that. But what I kind of remember when I really first got interested in this field is um, in middle school, like around sixth or seventh grade is when that deep water horizon oil spill happened. And a lot of my teachers were talking a lot about it. And we were just seeing you know news articles and And I just remember like hearing about the oil spill and it just made me very intrigued by like how powerful the ocean is, but yet so vulnerable and how something like that can make, you know, have a big impact and be pretty detrimental to the ecosystem. So I, yeah, from then I just basically started throwing myself into documentaries I found online and just learning more about it. And then I was kind of looking at high school and where I wanted to go with my career. So, and then I applied to a marine magnet program. 
Hey, it's us. Uh, welcome to the mid-podcast American to Australian translation service. We've got, <laughs> we've got a few to get out of the way. The first is what you just heard, Marine Magnet Program. Alex, do you know what that is? So I had to look this up because I had no idea. But from what I can tell, uh, magnet marine science programs are programs that expose students to environmental issues and foster marine stewardship. So that's it. (laughs) Cool, cool. And we're going to prime you and get you ready for a couple of other Americanisms that are coming down the line. We're just going to get these all out of the way so you're prepared for the future. Uh, The the next one that's coming up is Panera, Alex. (laughs) What's Panera? (laughs) Do you know what a Panera is? Panera is a chain of stores. Panera bread. (laughs) (laughs) They're casual restaurants, which are... You can get sandwiches from. Okay. Okay. Uh, the next, the, the third one is the word school, because if you hear the word school out of an American's mouth, it either means school or it means university or it yep. means both school and university at the same time. Yeah. And then there's a qualifier. If you hear the word grad and then the word school, it means, what does it mean? Grad school is basically any sort of university level program that's past undergrad. <laughs> Grad programs. So if you're getting a little bit confused, just think about how we call chips everything. Yeah. Normal <laughs> chips, crisp, it's all school. Hot chips. It's all it's all school. Our version of chips. <laughs> okay, so to recap, marine magnet program, basically high school excursion thing. Panera is a chain of bread stores. School means uni or school, and grad school means postgraduate uni. Yep. <laughs> you're armed and ready to go. We're gonna jump back in right where we left off. with Deb talking about the Marine Magnet program. And I went to one here in Hollywood and freshman year, I went out on the boat with University of Miami. Basically, they take high school students out to go tagging to kind of throw you in the field and see if that's something you like. And I remember being on the boat and they caught their first shark. It was a bull shark. And to me, it was big because I've never seen a shark before. But now looking back, I'm like, that's cute. It's a cute shark. (laughs) But I just remember seeing that first animal. It's like everyone talks so negatively about it. But seeing it in person, it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And like, that's exactly when I was like, I'm doing marine research and I want to do shark conservation. And yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. I love that it was a, a bull shark too, because in the world of sharks, they're probably on the ugliest side of things. Yeah. There, and yeah, they're gnarly so looking things. And you still looked at that and were like, oh yeah, these are cool. I want to I work with these. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. And honestly though, like when I went to high school, uh, when I went to college, I'll talk a little bit more about like my struggles in college and attending, mm. but it was actually the most interesting thing. And I just, I feel like when you're called to something or when you have a passion about something, it just ends up working out. But like kind of a way that I got my toes dipped into like the research field side of marine science. My friend actually sent me a message randomly one day of a job advertisement on Craigslist. She was like, oh, there's this really cool like marine camp counselor job. You should, you know, you like marine science. I'm like, cool. So I applied for it. I got it. And the owner of the company actually knew Hannah Med. She's the head of the American Shark Conservancy organization that I work with now. She's a founder. She's really awesome. And she knew her and Hannah was looking for volunteers. So uh, me and my friend Gretchen, we met her at a Panera and we were so nervous. We were like fangirling like, Hannah, she's so cool. Like she did amazing research. And so we met her at a Panera and we talked and then we started volunteering for her. And now I lead a project with her and it's just like, from a Craigslist ad, I kind of got jumped into all this like hammerhead stuff and it's really cool. <laughs> that's awesome. It was awesome. This, that's literally like finding something on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> yeah, this- that's so cool. 
<laughs> that was really cool. I'm like, Crystal, thank you. She like changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did it go from in, in, you know, in the camp and doing that sort of stuff into to university and getting in formally into shark research then? It was pretty smooth. Um, I was already in college when I started. I was just, I'm very grateful to have Hannah from the beginning because she's like a mentor and a friend. And so she was there when I was, you know, applying to different volunteer programs and things like that. So she, she's honestly all for my crazy ideas. Like I applied for a grant last month and I called her last minute and I'm like, Hey, the deadline's tomorrow. So what do you think about this? Project? And she's like, oh, go for it. Like when I applied for this internship that I'm doing right now with National Geographic and the day before I was like, by the way, I applied. So if they call you, you're like one of my references. And she's like, so cool. She's so cool. On you now. Yeah. Sorry, Hannah. Tell them I'm awesome. <laughs> But um, it was pretty smooth. I mean, I did kind of have a little bit of trouble going from high school to college because of my, because being an immigrant in this country, I mean, I was unfortunate, I was not fortunate enough to have access to scholarships and um, just opportunities to get fully funded in college. So I got into Nova Southeastern's Marine program. And unfortunately, it's a private school. So it's you know fairly expensive. Um, so I couldn't afford to go. So I ended up going to Florida Atlantic University. And that was actually the best thing that could have happened to me because in college, I kind of just got involved more with the lab. And then that's uh, it was pretty smooth from then. But I think it was really great having that background of like a camp counselor. Because I feel like as a marine scientist, you can either be really good at doing research and then really good at public speaking. Sometimes it's difficult to do both. So I think that background as a camp counselor really gave me a good experience in public speaking and talking about my passions and the work that I do. There's so many great scientists out there doing such great research, but quite often they're not great at communicating, yeah. <laughs> which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, so you're, you're, I was going to say you're a first uh, guest on here that's, that's currently in undergrad. You're, you're pretty close to graduating now, right? Yeah, I'm graduating in December, December 17th. Oh, that's so yeah. exciting. Can't wait. <laughs> Do you, have, uh, do you have much planned for afterwards? Yes, I'm actually currently in the process of applying to uh, grad school. And there is one school that I'm, I don't want to, I want to jinx it. But my goal is to just continue my education because it's just one thing my parents always told me is like education is priceless. And I always want to learn. I want to, you know, be active in the field of marine science. I want to be able to be productive. So I definitely plan on going to grad school and moving forward. Cool. So if you could, I mean... If you could absolutely pick a dream project for your grad, what, what do you think it would be? <sighs> I mean, this would probably be for PhD or like post-grad, <laughs> but my dream would be probably to find a new shark species. But that's like probably not something I do in grad school. But yes. um, it's actually funny because I, um, I did a course with field school they're here based off of Miami. I don't know if you guys heard of field school. They're really, really cool. And they basically take students out for a week on a boat and they teach them the basics of shark tagging. So taking muscle biopsies, how to analyze blood samples. And one of the things we were talking about is how not a lot of people know about like mako sharks and where they give birth and like nurseries. And they were like, well, whoever finds out becomes shark queen. So I was like, perfect. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. I that is my origin shark. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is me. <laughs> So, um, I mean, there's not like a specific project that I'm like my dream. I'm just really into more like fisheries management and like ecology, where they go, why they go, predator-prey interaction. So just kind of doing something that makes a difference and at the end is used for 
um, regulations and stuff like that would be a dream. I've got to ask, if you do find a new shark species, do you have a name lined up for it? <laughs> no, I'm so like indecisive. I probably take forever to find it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Um, but you said you're really into the ecology and biology side of it. So let's dig into that with hammerheads. Can we start with the very basics? How many types of hammerheads are there in the world? So in the world, there's really a lot of people really know um, one basic hammerhead, which is mm. the great hammerhead. Um, but there's about like nine known species. There's like the scalloped and there's the great hammerhead. But they're, you know, they're well known for their big <laughs> chunky little I feel like they're like nerdy eyes and things like that but, um, <laughs> yeah and <laughs> there's about nine known species and I think they're cool they're really awesome yeah so so what makes the great hammerheads um different from the others then what what are the the features that make them stick out so gray hammerheads sorry let me just I wrote notes about that <laughs> Love it. one second okay all right. So what makes uh, gray hammerheads different from the other species is that they're pretty much the biggest. So they can reach a maximum length of like 6.1 meters. And so they're found in like tropical and warm waters and things like that. But basically the gray hammerheads that I've come across in is in our uh, fisheries project that we're doing here in Florida. So really cool thing is that they can come down to Florida and one of their prey is blacktip. And because there's a massive blacktip migration coming down here in Jupiter, Hey, hey, uh, just clarifying Jupiter. Where's the Jupiter, Alex? Jupiter is in Florida and it's very close to Miami from what I can tell. <laughs> on the coast it's of Florida, just, where are we looking? Yep, on the coast and just a bit north of Miami. So you go past Miami, also Florida's version of Hollywood, apparently, Fort Lauderdale, and then you get up to Jupiter and just below Jupiter is something that'll come up in a moment, which is West Palm Beach. <laughs> um, that's when we kind of see them the most during wintertime Um like early spring so this might be a bit of a dumb question but what a black tip it's a type of shark <laughs> okay <right. laughs> <a type> of <laughs> so they eat other sharks cool hey yeah i didn't know that well can we get into the um the, the the question that i think pretty much everyone has on their lips when they when they find someone who who knows stuff about hammerhead sharks which is why why is there a hammer on their head <laughs> Like what's, what's the benefit of the hammer? So I know, right? It's like, why do you even have a face like that? <laughs> but um, they're like hammer shaped heads is really good in detecting prey. So it's just the electrical receptors, the amazing just machine that they have inside of their, their heads and how they can detect it. So it's basically kind of like, I want to say not really like a vacuum, but kind of like, you know, when they move around and they just sense things, they have a different visual you know, perspective. It's just, it makes them stand out and it's just something that they have adapted to detect prey. Cool. Um, so the electrical fields, I was, is it, is that part of the, um, I know it's got a real scientific name. We were talking about it last episode. Is it the, is that part of the ampullae of Lorenz, Lorenzini? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good job on pronouncing that. A lot of people are like, uh. <laughs> I literally heard it like a week ago. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I would have butchered it. So it's uh, basically like special little sensing organs, kind of like the dots that you can see under their nose or around their eyes. Oh, ah, cool. Ears, if you want to say. So it's uh, really cool. It's like special sensing organs. There's actually mucus inside those pores, and it's a network of them. So um, they're found mostly in like cardinalagulous fish and things like that. 
but and I yeah. feel like well, often the t- often when I I see sort of documentaries or, or footage of of the hammerheads, they're they're using it to pick up prey that are concealed, maybe below below the surface or something like that. That's hard to see visually that they can use the electrical signals for. But you mentioned that they're eating a lot of sharks as well. Do do the great hammerheads? Does it help them when they're when they're finding prey that they they can also see with their eyes? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does help them. Um, it's just kind of like both ways. I just, def- my opinion is that Ampule Lorenzini is probably a little bit more efficient because it is something that, you know, detects maybe a fish on top of the water that's struggling to swim. Right. So that flappiness and things like that that you get on top of the water. And you're, you've done a lot of research as well and, and, and sort of jumped in the water with these sharks. When you're doing this stuff, what are you looking for when you're jumping in the water with a hammerhead? So, um, when we jump in the water with the sharks, we're basically trying to collect like in water biological and behavioral data. So we have a really cool camera that we it's called photogametry. So it's like a GoPro attached to a pole with lasers at the end, like paired lasers. And we jump in the water and the lasers is measured. So we just shoot it at the shark and you can kind of tell the length. So we're basically measuring length. We're measuring sex and kind of... Um, different things that they would have, like maybe there's a hook on a shark's mouth or one of the fins is kind of cut weird. Uh, There's a bite mark here. So with the shark surveys that I'm the project manager with American Shark Conservancy is that we're kind of trying to determine the shifts in the species, the abundance of sharks that we have in the area, um, because there's not really any baseline data of like what sharks are here, what sharks stay here. So when we jump in the water, we're just trying to take as much data as we can. Some really cool things that we found out about the surveys is that there's a couple of sharks that actually hang out here. Um, they're like locals. So we have Patrick, the tiger shark. We call him Patrick. We have the Jenny. <laughs> yeah. So there's some locals hanging out around. and that's- Do you name most sharks that you find? The, so we work with um, some dive companies. Liz Murphy is really, really awesome. She's one of the main shark feeders in Jupiter. She sends me a lot of data. Because when I'm not in the water with them, I'll be you know, going through the data, organizing it, analyzing everything. And she's basically like there every day on the water. So she'll name them and she'll be like, oh, this one's Bob or, you know, this one's Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so can you describe what a, a day looks like for you going out and doing that sort of work? You, you jump on the boat and then where do you point it? Like, what, what happens <laughs> so, um typical day is we wake up pretty early. We like to get up sometimes, you know, before the sun goes up, just make sure that we're the first ones on the dock and just make sure that we have all of our equipment ready. We have the cameras, we have the bait and stuff like that. So, um, we'll work with different shark diving companies. So we'll just jump on the boat, make sure all of our gear is there, make sure we have the bait and then we'll have a feeder. So Cassandra Scott is, she's amazing. She's like an engineer by day, like shark saver by night. She is really, really helpful <laughs> and she'll go in first cause she's a feeder. She'll make sure everything is safe. You know, she'll kind of tell us like, these are the species that are here. You know, if there's ever a situation that it seems like they're agitated or, you know, just seem unsafe, we're just always really good about saying, okay, you know, let's move on to the next location and she'll jump in the water and we'll basically have our bait there and have a bait crate which attracts the sharks there. So if we're doing free diving, we'll, yeah, we'll basically just kind of jump on in. We try to have everything black. So we'll have black booties, uh, black hood, black gloves, because human skin looks like fish. 
um, flesh. So okay. <laughs> we want to feed them our fingers. <laughs> so we'll just wear everything black and we'll have uh, the main feeder in the water and everyone else free diving. Someone will throw over the camera and we'll basically just point it at them and they're just swimming around. You just stay calm and just swim with them and just, and we'll just do like two dives a day. And that's if we're doing free diving, if we're doing like scuba diving, um, we'll go out very early in the morning. We'll jump in the water and just go to different locations in Jupiter and West Palm. And same idea, kind of jump in the water, you know, make sure everyone is safe. Everything is good. Um, it's very, definitely very like life changing, I would say, when you're in the water with sharks. Because I just think like watching documentaries and just hearing from people's perspective saying, oh my God, it's a shark. Like it's going to eat me. But once you're in the water with them, I think it's just like a whole other sense of respect. I'm not going to say that sharks are puppies. You know, they're little cute things we can snuggle with. Like, you know, they're powerful. <laughs> they're powerful, you know. Um, they're just, we don't, we can't really tell or predict what they're going to do next. You know, they're just beautiful, powerful animals. But just kind of being in the water with that much power is, I think, really amazing. And um, kind of like a self-reflecting moment. There are some species, I would say, like lemon sharks. They're just all over the place they'll come up to you like hey what's up and like bump into you you kind of have to be like dude like hello like no 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 <laughs> so and they'll follow you even if you don't have bait they're just so interested so there's just certain species that's so they're my favorite to swim with they're just so cute but yeah there's just certain species you jump in the water and you're just like this is amazing like you know they're all over it and then other species like bull sharks they're actually kind of standoffish They'll just, uh, depending on what other species in the water, like to, let's say if there's like a tiger shark um, or when there's silkies in the water or sandbars, they'll kind of back off and let that species take over and eat. So, silkies, what are they, Gabe? <laughs> well, they're not, as Dr. Google would have you believe, uh, a type of chicken. <laughs> just the first result that comes up if you're just banging silkies, they are a type of shark. They go by a lot of common names, but... Uh, they're a type of shark that's found all over the world. Pretty large looking thing. If you just think shark, if, like block out tiger sharks, great whites. If you just think shark, that's that's what a silky looks like. It's a very run-of-the-mill looking shark uh, found all over the place, uh, including in the waters of Florida where bull sharks and hammerheads are also occurring. Sandbars. That's not a shark, right? That's as in like actual sandbars. <laughs> no, <laughs> they're actual <laughs> sharks called sandbar sharks, which also just look like very, very typical sharks, but they've got a bit of an orangey, sandy look to them. Um, and Amazing. they're also found <laughs> all over the world, including in Florida. So we've got the classic archetype shark yep. and then orange sandy Tan version of it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll get back into it. <laughs> So uh, it's just really interesting because people hear bull sharks and, oh, you might find a bull shark in the water. And they're like, oh, my gosh. But they really just kind of stay in the corner, like watching you like, OK, I'm not going to interact. But it's really cool. <laughs> huh. Have you noticed that your attitude to just being in the water has changed? Do you think from when you first dived in the water and saw a bull shark or a tiger shark and what to what it is now? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think the first time scuba diving which I think is a little bit more, what's the word? I don't want to say like intimidating, but it's just cause like you're down there, you know, you're like a hundred and something feet down mm -hmm. there. 
but I just remember being stiff. Like, I don't want to move weird and have them come to me and see like, Oh, what, what is she doing? And just kind of come after me. So I was a little uncomfortable because I mean, you're in the water with jerks. Like that's scary yeah. sometimes, you know, it's unpredictable. So I definitely was kind of like stiff. Like I had the camera close to me and I was just like filming them like, okay. But, um, a few weeks ago we went free diving and it was just different. It's just a lot more, a lot more comfortable. And I think for me, just going often with a certain amount of people or my certain group is just being more comfortable knowing that like, they know what you're doing. You know, I know what I'm doing. So everyone is safe and it has definitely changed. Yeah. But I'm not going to lie. There are some times where they come too fast and I was like, uh, what? <laughs> I get a little nervous. So. <laughs> it's like, oh God, yeah. is this it? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how I go. <laughs> and uh, I mean, like we're talking about how stressful it is to be in this, the water with sharks, but I think some of the work you're involved with also looks at the stress that sharks go under across their lives. How, how do you measure a shark's stress level? So there's, it's actually really interesting. It's like an ongoing research that they have with different universities, but you can kind of uh, measure their lactate levels. You take blood samples. You can also kind of look at their behavior. The research that we're doing now with hammerheads is mostly um, post-release work. So instead of taking like blood samples for them, when we catch them, we kind of look, tag them and look at how their behavior is and how, you know, their interactions and stuff like that after they're released. And one of the papers that I had to read for my homework was about the stress physiology of sharks. And one of the interesting findings that they had was that there's some sharks that are still stressed, like six, seven, eight hours after an interaction with like being caught caught and released Mm. so kind of how they really measured that was looking at like the the lactate levels the behavior of the shark you tag them and kind of see like their movement where they go hey hey, we're back again uh just quickly clarifying lactate when she talks about lactate that's the same thing as what we usually refer to or often refer to as as lactic acid so the buildup of that after a lot of stress or exercise or just physical exertion is is what they're measuring there and yeah, at a very basic level, that's like when your body has more demand for oxygen than your cells can actually supply. So you shift from aerobic to anaerobic metabolism. And when that happens, you generate lactate as a byproduct. And that lactate then goes from your white muscles into your bloodstream. And when they're in the bloodstream, it can then be picked up through tests that you can do on animals like sharks. And from that, you can sort of pick up how stressed they were or are based on levels of when they you know they're not stressed but deb sent through a bunch more info after the interview about this for us to dig into yeah she just wanted to clarify that you can also measure stress through blood glucose blood ph and hemoglobin and the paper she mentioned is called dead tired evaluating the physiological status and survival of neonatal reef sharks under stress and i wanted to say the title because even though that sounds super long and complex it's actually one of the more interesting scientific titles out there. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> um, and like she said, the study found that sharks could take eight hours to recover after an exhaustive challenge. And they usually use about 15% of their energy on a daily swimming or single challenge. Mm. Not fun. But yeah. So that's just a bit more context. We'll let her get back to it. <laughs> but when I did a course with field school, they did take some blood samples and it was just pretty awesome. Like they just kind of like jumped in, like it was nothing, like took the blood sample, lifted up the back fin. Yeah. It was, I was like, that's so cool. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. and when you say you're like behavior changes, what kind of behavior are you, are you monitoring? 
Um, we're basically kind of looking and seeing, um, you can kind of look at depth and after they get released, what depth they stay at, depending on, you know, if they're at the bottom for a certain period of time, that's when we know that it was not a good release. But we're basically just kind of looking at where they go after they're released, if they go, you know, deep waters or if they stay close to shore um, and just kind of seeing how they are. Kind of oh. If they go off to sulk, you know that you've, you've stressed <laughs> them out a little bit. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I um, I also saw that yeah, yeah, one of your big interest areas um, is, is shark skin. I, I've, I've, I was going to say, I've heard a little bit about shark skin being pretty different, but can you, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So <laughs> it's actually kind of like sandpaper is like the best way I can describe it. Oh. And there's definitely been a couple of times when we're doing our hammerhead research, we're like on the beach, you know, there's like waves crashing in, there's people running around. It's just like a very active environment and a shark like scrapes you and the day after or three days after it's like burning. It's just like putting <laughs> sandpaper on your, your legs. Yeah. Hey, so look, we're cutting in again. Usually we cut in with stuff that's very relevant to the interview, but this time I just, I had to mention this. There was a paper that came out a few days actually after we talked to Deb, which was about shark skin. And so I had to bring this up because th- it was the first time that we've had documented evidence that fish use sharks to exfoliate. <laughs> like that's how rough their skin is. <laughs> that's incredible. That's, that's the level that this skin is at. Like we knew fish use other like really hard stuff like rocks to exfoliate <laughs> and get you know, dead and or potentially disease scales off and things like that. They use sharks as well, like they're predators. They rub up against them to get to, <laughs> to exfoliate. <laughs> I just I couldn't let this go without bringing this up because it's just the coolest thing. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> anyway, that's oh it. That's all God. I wanted to say. We'll get back to it. Worth it. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically kind of like, it's called like uh, dermal denticles, like skin teeth. So they basically have teeth for skin. Yeah. Wow. They're literally just covered in teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They didn't have enough already. Um, yeah, right? can, we talk, <laughs> can we talk a bit about uh, the, the sort of state of affairs for great hammerheads? Um, are they, how are they faring in, uh, in especially in, in your area of the world? So um, global shark populations, you know, even gray hammerheads are facing various threats throughout the world. You know, it depends, like comes from overfishing or climate change and things like being bycatch, which is uh, incidental being caught in commercial fisheries or recreational fisheries. And, you know, they're beautiful fins. They can be caught for that as well. Um, And most specifically here in Florida, they're still kind of considered critical. It's something that the research and the, the data that we had on gray hammerheads and just sharks in general over the last few years is not very up to date, I would say. Um, the research that we're doing basically focuses more on the impacts of like commercial fix- fisheries um, and recreational sector and things like that. Uh, so the, um, the main threats then, you mentioned bycatch in uh, commercial and um, uh, recreational fishing, as well as some deliberate catching in parts of the world. Uh, what, what sort of work can be done and is being done to combat those threats? Yeah, so definitely looking mostly at their like migration and where they are and how long they stay in an area for. for. Because, you know, if you know how long they stay in an area for, then you kind of know like their seasons, um, how many you can kind of catch and just creating regulations in that specific area and that specific time of the year, kind of like changing um, 
like circle hooks and changing kind of fishing gear and things like that. So that's also one of the reasons why um, American Shark Conservancy and they're doing this research is because we really don't know very much about them. There's not really much baseline, like basic data. And so hopefully, you know, with the research that we're doing that's ongoing, we'll, we'll know a little bit more information about and able to create different regulations and to kind of protect them. And yeah. Cool. Um, and uh, I guess this is a, just a, in, in your general opinion, I feel like sharks and, and, and particularly hammerheads are pretty, well, I mean, we might be a little biased, but pretty charismatic. <laughs> um, but I, like, I didn't realize just how in trouble they actually are. Do you feel like that's a pretty common thing that most people don't realize that they're actually threatened? Yeah, I definitely do because I, I just feel like when people have shark sightings or like there's a shark attack, that's kind of the only thing that's really blasted in, in the media. And so they think, oh, there's so many shark attacks. There must be so many sharks in the water or so many of this amount of species. So I definitely do think that is something that not a lot of people know about. And even a lot of scientists and, you know, local people, because this is such an up and coming field and just migratory patterns and tagging them and tracking is something that's so new over the last couple of decades um, that we're still even learning ourselves how many are in the water, you know, and how many come up and down. Um, and uh, I mean, this might be a bit of a difficult question to answer, but um, do you think that given that they are like currently critically endangered, do you think that great hammerheads will make through the next like couple of decades, be around for like the next 50 to hundred years? I think so. I think because of the increase in awareness of, you know, the decline of sharks worldwide and all these documentaries that are coming out. And I think it's a field that a lot of people are now getting more interested in. And I just think you guys, you know, working in conservation and just interviewing a lot of people, I'm sure that you've seen people change their perspectives about, conservation in general and just uh, shark conservation. So I do think that the awareness that's going on in social media has definitely played a positive impact in it. Um, that I think that with our generation and my generation right now, is just so big on, you know, saving the environment and what can you, you do, you know, with your community, what can you do locally and what are the impacts that you can make? I, I have, I'm pretty hopeful. I definitely think that um, a lot of people are kind of, becoming aware of this issue and they want to help. Everyone wants to help. Who doesn't want to do shark research, you know? <laughs> so mm. <laughs> that's, uh, it's, it's good, good, good to hear. That there's still quite a bit of hope out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to go in a, in a bit of a different direction. I, uh, I'm just curious. It seems like you've done quite a bit of diving with sharks, but do you have like a particular dive that just stands out above all the rest? That was just amazing. <laughs> yes. I, um, it was actually happened this year with Cassandra Scott and we were just doing like a short little survey and we just like jumped on the boat with Hannah and we were like, let's just go see what we can find, you know, just kind of uh, measure them and stuff like that, get more data. And it was kind of like, not the nicest day out. I want to say the, the currents were a little <laughs> strong. <laughs> it wasn't like the perfect, you know, research day. But I do remember kind of like jumping in the water and it was just me and Cass and she was, you know, filming and, and had the big crate and stuff. And I just kind of like looked up and looked down and I was like, there's like seven lemon sharks in this water right now. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is awesome. A little scary, but that dive, I was definitely kind of like watching her the whole time, seeing how she interacts with them and kind of. Like she just watches them. She's so good. She watches them at all times. She knows exactly what to do. 
And in that dive, I was pretty much in awe of her and in awe of like, I'm actually doing this. Like I'm jumping in the water with sharks and taking data. Like three-year-old me would be so proud, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I just like love lemon sharks. They're so fun to swim with and they're so interactive in some ways. So I think that dive was just like really cool. And it was just something that was unexpected. Like, you know, it was just like, oh, let's just jump in the water and see. And it was awesome. I mean, like shark biologist is possibly the coolest title to go by, right? Right? In terms of like the the world's best jobs. But are there any sort of downsides to it? What are the, what's the less glamorous side of doing the the stuff you've done and the research you've done? So, you know, of course it's exciting and we love to talk about the days that we catch and tag a shark, uh, the amazing field days that we have. But there is definitely some days where we're out there for like weeks and we don't catch anything. Um, specifically with the hammerhead, we're sitting on the beach, just basically waiting. Uh, we work with the fishermen's and so they do their thing and we, we don't even try to like get, you know, we don't try to um, get in the way. We basically just sit there, let them do their thing and wait for something to bite. And there has been days where it's like pouring rain. I remember this one time I brought like a tent and I was doing my homework because I'm in school. So I always have homework to do. So I'm like on my computer and it just starts to completely pour. And like me and Gretchen and Caitlin, one of the research assistants, we're just like, don't get Deborah's computer wet. Like we're just throwing towels there. (laughs) Everything is getting soaked. And then there's been some days where it's freezing. It's absolutely freezing because, you know, of course, when you're not out in the field, it's beautiful, sunny, warm. But then when you're actually trying to do something, it's cold (laughs) and it's not very good conditions. So there's been some days where we're just tired and a little irritated and just freezing. But um, the good things like outweigh the bad, really. Just like when you hear that shark on the line and you just see that beautiful hammerhead, it's kind of like, oh, you know, it's all worth it. Mm -hmm. So, so what is that work then? Are you basically waiting for fishermen to pull them in as bycatch or is is like that, is that the way you're getting them in that context? So shark fishing is a sport here in Florida and, um, basically the, it's like, um, recreational fishing. And so they'll just hang out on the shore and they'll paddle out on a kayak and they will drop bait and they'll come back out and just, you know, wait for a shark to bite. And, um, We'll basically just work with the anglers. This project is really good about kind of looking at the recreational fisheries impacts on sharks um, and the catch and release, like looking at mortality. But I just think one of the amazing things about this is kind of seeing the fisherman's perspective. Because, you know, at the end of the day, all we want to do is conservation. Like we want to work with everyone together. We want it to be so Oh, what's the word? We don't want it to be something where it's like a, a group against the other. Yeah. We want, everyone wants yeah. to work together. Like, you know, they want to be able to do what they love and we want to be able to save what we love. And so, yeah, we basically just hang out with them and there's been, we're like friends with fishermen now and it's so great seeing their, their <laughs> perspective on it. And I think it's like two different things. Like this project is, you know, research and kind of look at post-release mortality, but another way it's also kind of communications and kind of seeing the fisherman's perspective of it, which is really, really interesting. So it's us coming in again and we were just wanted to chat about this like recreational fishing of hammerheads in Florida. Cause it's kind of mm. like, we just didn't expect this to be a thing kind of just caught us off guard a little. Yeah, so you can catch hammerheads and land a hammerhead shark in federal waters in the U.S. generally. But in Florida, the state has classed them as prohibited sharks. 
which means you can still recreationally fish them. You just can't bring them out of the water and you obviously can't, you know, harvest any bits off them or anything like that. Uh, you have to, you, you can, fins intact. exactly. You can get them <laughs> on the line, bring them in, uh, keep them in the water, take the hook out. If you can't get the hook out, you, you have to just cut the line uh, and let them go. That's, that's what you're allowed to do. Uh, but this catch and release thing has some contention about it because it's not, well, there's, there's no evidence that definitely says for or against whether or not the shark's okay <laughs> once you let it go. Um, but there's been some evidence recently that suggests that they might not do so well after they leave. Deb already mentioned like 8.4 hours, I think the paper said, after they get released, they're still showing signs of stress and still showing levels of stress hormones. There's another paper that came out in 2014 that looked at the stress and long-term sort of survival of five different species. So they caught about 100 sharks. The species were the ones we've been talking about in this interview, tiger sharks, bull sharks, lemon sharks, black tips, and great hammerheads. And they used this drumline fishing apparatus for all of them, which is similar to how they'd be caught uh, off a fishing line. So they found the the great hammerheads had by far the highest stress response of any of the five species. Um, And then they also found that some of the species were sort of fine. The tiger sharks, they tagged 28 of them and all of them except one survived to four weeks. Well, the tag was still working after four weeks. You can't know for sure what happens to them. Uh, They could die. They could get eaten. They could break the tag. The tag might just fall off naturally. Like so other things can happen, but the tags on all except one of the tiger sharks were still working. And the, the one that wasn't was because a fisherman caught it and pulled it out of the water and killed it. So basically all the tiger sharks survived the initial catch of the study in hammerheads. 53% of the tags were working after four weeks. So nearly half, like 13 of the 28 uh, were lost track of after four weeks and maybe could have died uh, as a response to being caught on a line. And then they actually attached a camera to one of the hammerheads that they, they caught. It was fighting against the line for 24 minutes. So that's not, a huge amount of time in in the grand scheme of things compared to how long some of these fights can last. Uh, and then after releasing it, it swam away in a tilted position and then within 10 minutes began to sink and die <laughs> just because just like directly after being caught. Um, so uh, if you just left it to swim away, it would have probably looked like it was doing all right, maybe just a bit sort of freaked out and knocked around by the experience, but then it died. So it, this, the authors in this study flat out say like you can't know for sure if this is a good comparison to people fishing off a boat or off the shore but it does go to show that there may be more to the puzzle of just letting a shark go and hope and just assuming that if it swims off it's going to survive deb actually mentioned that the um, american shark conservancy is currently working on a project trying to figure that out so it's in the works but yeah that's why there's a bit of controversy about whether or not hammerhead should be caught in this way yeah and like deb was saying it's not about pitting groups against each other or saying it's it's right or wrong it's just we we don't know enough about this yet so it, it's it's not like the, the the fishermen are doing this and know that there's terrible things happening it's just purely like they obviously it's obviously they they love the sport a lot of people love the animals and it's just like we got to figure out a way to work i guess make it work for everybody <laughs> But yeah, that was a bit of a depressing tangent. But yeah, we'll, we need to lift the mood. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up. We'll get into the audience questions. And after that, Sue Bez's question time. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, do you want to jump into the um, audience questions, Alex? Yeah, let's do it. We have audience questions. Um, we do. Yeah, we, we, we throw up a poll on our um, on our Instagram, and uh, we get people writing in. What? <laughs> so, um, Dev wanted to know what makes great hammerheads different from scalloped hammerheads. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of their the great hammerhead has a kind of like a T shaped head where the salad tamer head is like a little bit more rounded and it's like a scallop shapes on the front, kind of looking like a shovel. Ah, cool. Um, and she also wanted to know as a follow up, do they ever crossbreed that you know of? I don't know. That is a great question. That's really interesting. I don't know. Cool. Um, and just she had one by one. <laughs> she had a few. She was very excited. <laughs> um, are they ever targeted by the, like a great hammerheads are ever targeted by the fin trade? Yes, because they have such beautiful massive fins that, uh, yeah, they, they are targeted in different parts of the world. Uh, Ali has a question. Um, what's the evolutionary benefit of having the hammer shaped head? And also wanted to ask uh, which came first, the hammer or the hammerhead? Like which was named after the other? <laughs> That's a really great question. It's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. <laughs> um, but basically the, the one of the benefits for their like mallet-shaped head is just kind of boosts their ability to eat and broadens like their electroreceptors and sensory organs that they have to find food. So it's pretty high tech. Like you, they have amazing smell and vision, but the sensory organs are just out of this world. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then <laughs> my mom actually had a couple of questions. Hey. <laughs> she, she wanted to know um, where about like whereabouts can they be found around the world? So they're found in uh, mostly tropical waters, and there's definitely a group of sharks, hammerhead sharks, that hang out here in Florida, which is really really cool. Um, but yeah, they're mostly found in like tropical, temperate waters worldwide. And um, are they often found in shallow water? Yes, they can. They can definitely be found in shallow water. Cool. Um, Duncan was asking what role great hammerheads have in maintaining those ecosystems that they are a part of. Like, what's their role in the the wider ecosystem there? So they're keystone species, and they're apex predators. So. They play an essential role in maintaining the coastal marine environment. Um, they keep the balance well within the ecosystem and prey on species below them in the food chain, and they ensure species diversity. Cool. Um, and then we have one final question from Liz, and she wanted to know, aside from humans, do they have any natural predators? So let me see if – let me just pull something up really quickly because this is something that I was talking to Hannah about yeah so there's actually um one of the predators for the hammerheads can be great white sharks tiger sharks and Mm. even killer whales damn that's pretty cool (laughs) killer whales are awesome Um, yeah (laughs) Uh, so yeah we always finish up by asking um if there's like one one like 30 second soundbite takeaway message whatever, whatever you want to call it that you think is worth hearing that people should should know um, about mm. hammerhead conservation, but also shark conservation in general. What what do you think that would be? What's your like your one thing you want to hit home? Hmm. I prepared for this, but now I'm like, hmm. <laughs> 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 okay, I kind of want to direct this mostly towards like the people involved in this field, and mm-hmm. kind of like so. I'm just kind of going to go that way. 
so kind of like a take home message and, and something that I can share that I really want to share with everyone is that making impact in this field and being involved isn't only reserved for PhD students or big name marine biologists. And it's just something that I feel like I've said, you know, I've been saying just the theme is like marine conservation is something that you can do in your community. Getting involved in a small scale level can create a big impact in the future. And so kind of just something that I want to say is like, I don't know, you volunteering with a nonprofit and kind of learning a little bit more specifically about the animals in your area or you volunteering at a zoo um, is just something that would be really awesome. And I think that people could get involved with and learn more about conservation. And, and if you're a minority, you can do it. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter your background. Like as long as you know, you have a, you're very positive about it and you're hardworking, you can get that experience. You can be a marine biologist. You can do anything you want to do. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess that's pretty much all we've got. I think, right, Gabe? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, it's been great talking to you. No problem. This has been so much fun. <laughs> Episode 10 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagra, and Garingai people. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. A huge thank you to Deb for patching in from Florida. She is going through her last semester of undergrad university and is a very busy person, so we really appreciate it. And she happens to be the first person we've had calling in from the US. There you go. Deb's on Twitter. Yeah. So she's on Twitter at DiverDeb with two Bs. So D-I-V-E-R-D-E-B-B. And the American Shark Conservancy is also on Twitter with the awesome handle at Shark Studies. <laughs> uh, we're back next week. I know, aren't we just the best? With another bonus episode <laughs> featuring more of this interview we had with Deb about some of her struggles getting into conservation and science generally, uh, as well as the uh, Minorities in Shark Science group that she's a part of. And there's a little taste of that conversation lined up at the end of this episode. Give Life on the Brink a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. If you haven't already, they make a really big difference to how many people see this little podcast. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at A Life on the Brink. Follow us on the Instagram if you want to start submitting your own questions for us to ask in these interviews. There are 10 episodes of Life on the Brink already out if you want to catch up on some you haven't heard yet or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. A massive thank you to Angus Bazina for running that website. And to Kyle Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. It's night. I definitely had a little bit of a struggle where it's like I have this diverse Brazilian background, but I'm you know, being raised into an American environment. So it was definitely kind of like, who am I? Like, am I, do I see myself as an American or I see myself as a Brazilian? And there's definitely different views in conservation in the different countries. So Brazil has like a whole other different perspective in conservation where America, I believe, is very hands-on and they create regulations and there's just, they're backed up by research. So, um, having that in my mind and kind of like fighting who like who am I like where do I come from and just seeing this organization and seeing what the girls have created I was like this is amazing I want to become a member 